After discovering an unknown wreck 65 miles off of the coast of New Jersey, two men lead multiple dives over the course of six years to uncover the mysterious sunken submarine. John Chatterton and Richie Kohler discovered an old World War II German U-boat, but no record existed of the sunken U-boat in any of the German or American naval archives. Pushing the limits of deep wreck diving, John and Richie set out on an adventure to rewrite naval history. Starting out as bitter rivals, John and Richie would soon develop a deep friendship, lose fellow divers, and strain their marriages as they pushed forward on their quest to identify the submarine and the 56 dead crew members who were lost to history. Find out more on this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Hey everyone, I'm your host Alex and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. This week is part one of Shadow Divers. Before we get started, I first want to give credit to the book where I obtained majority of the information for this topic. The book is titled Shadow Divers, the true adventure of two Americans who risked everything to solve one of the last mysteries of World War II, written by Robert Curson. It's truly a captivating book and it's very well written. Obviously, I will not be reading the book cover to cover because the book contains a mountain of amazing information. And because I'm only going to be touching on the topic, I highly, highly recommend that you purchase this book and read it yourself. I read it as part of the research for this topic and I seriously couldn't put it down. I'm going to link it in the episode description, so be sure to check it out if you'd like to purchase it. John Chatterton and Richie Kohler put thousands of research into the mysterious German U-boat, and Robert Curson did just as great of a job researching for this book. I love to read nonfiction books, and this is by far my favorite that I've ever read to date. And this isn't some kind of paid sponsorship or advertisement or anything like that. I just truly honestly think the book was very good, and I highly, highly, highly recommend it. All right, let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. Over the next two weeks, I'm going to guide you through the discovery of the undocumented German U-boat, touch on some World War II history, the six years that John and Richie spent researching and diving the wreck, and finally, what they uncovered. On a regular night in September 1991, Bill Nagel was sitting drinking at a local bar in Brielle, New Jersey, when a fisherman approached him. Known only as Skeets, this fisherman told Bill about a secret spot that he had found, and he told Bill that it felt different to him. He didn't know exactly what was down there, but he told Bill that it was big, and it was in about 200 feet or 61 meters of water. Bill was the captain of the Seeker, a 65-foot or 16.8 meter long boat built for a single purpose to take divers to the most dangerous shipwrecks in the Atlantic Ocean. Bill and Skeets knew each other well, and to Skeets, Bill was the only deep wreck diver that he knew that might be able to take on this deep, mysterious shipwreck. The next morning, Skeets met Bill on the Seeker and they exchanged coordinates. Skeets told him, Bill, I gotta tell you something. 
This site I found is a bad place. This part of the ocean is a bad place. It's a dangerous place. It's in a little depression. There's an edge there, with a huge current coming up over the continental shelf, lots of moving water. Really, Billy, it's a bad place. Your guys gotta be top shelf divers. You can have dead calm air and still water, and still the boat could be drifting at three knots. You know what that means, how dangerous the currents are underneath, and it's deep. I'm thinking like 200 feet. I don't know anything about diving, but you better watch your guys. Bill brushed him off and told him that he got it. He'd be careful. But Bill knew that Skeets was probably right. He had to call in the best guys that he knew. That night, Bill called up John Chatterton. According to Robert Curson's book, quote, By day, John worked underwater construction jobs around Manhattan, the kind that required a brass helmet and a 10,000-degree Broco torch. By weekend, he masterminded some of the most inventive and daring shipwreck dives ever executed on the eastern seaboard, end quote. There's something that you need to know about deep wreck diving. It's among the world's most dangerous sports. We talk a lot about cave diving on this podcast, and even some deep cave diving. But deep wreck diving is on a whole other level. In the 70s and 80s, a lot of famous shipwrecks lay on the seafloor still undiscovered. Deep wreck divers dove these sites not just to take treasure, but also for the adventure. Many of these sites hadn't been seen since their victims last looked at them, and they remained lost to the ocean. During these times, scuba diving equipment was still rudimentary and hadn't advanced much past 1943 when Jacques Cousteau helped invent the Aqualung, a system of tanks and regulators that allowed people to breathe underwater. It made these deep adventures that much more dangerous. In 1991, deep wreck diving was still somewhat new. There was no ancient wisdom being passed down from parent to child, the kind of collective experience that helps keep divers alive today. No maps were made of these newly discovered shipwrecks. Maybe if someone had visited the wreck before, they might tell the incoming diver, hey, don't brush up against that beam in the galley, the thing moved when I swam by it and the whole room might cave in and bury you if you do. Each diver on a newly discovered shipwreck was a pioneer, gathering new information, penetrating further into the ship than anyone had gone before, attempting to reach treasures or novelties that no one else had been able to get to. Even if information was being passed around in the diving community, it didn't always mean that it was correct or the most current information. The Atlantic Ocean is home to very strong currents and storms. And oftentimes, entrances that divers used previously might be blocked by new debris come the next diving season. The Atlantic floor is a wilderness of shipwrecks, and it demanded the same grit that the American West did of its pioneers. In 1991, of the 10 million divers that were scuba certified, maybe only a few hundred were daring enough to dive deep for these shipwrecks. But Bill knew that John Chatterton was one of these men who had just the grit that was needed to discover the mysterious shipwreck that laid 65 miles off of the New Jersey coastline. On Labor Day in 1991, the Seeker left port with its captain, Bill Nagel, 
Deepwreck diver John Chatterton, and 12 other hand-picked divers that Bill and John invited onto the trip. It took six hours before they reached the coordinates, and when they did, Bill performed a couple of sweeps over the area watching the bottom finder. On some of the passes, the bottom finder indicated a mass on the seafloor at about 230 feet, or 70 meters, and on some passes, it read 260 feet, or 79.2 meters. Bill said out loud, This is deeper than I was expecting. In 1991, there were no experienced 230-foot deep wreck divers. But Bill and John came up with a plan. John would dive and check out whatever was on the bottom. If the depth was reasonable and whatever it was looked worth the dive, he would tie the seeker's anchor line in. But if it was just some sunken barge or pile of rocks, or if the depth really was 260 feet, he would loosen the hook and return to the boat. Either way, everyone on the boat watched John splash into the water and had to wait for him to return. No one was permitted to attempt the dive until John had completed his decompression stops and was back on the boat to tell them what he saw. Before we discuss John's dive, let's first go over some of the dangers that deep wreck divers face. In 1991, deep divers only had one air option, normal compressed air. This puts them at great risks because, as we've discussed before on this podcast, after about 66 feet or 20 meters, judgment and motor skills become impaired due to nitrogen narcosis. The further you descend, the more pronounced narcosis becomes. After 100 feet or 30.4 meters, where some of the best shipwrecks lie, a diver can be significantly handicapped and yet still need to perform feats and make decisions that his or her life depends on. Now, I really love the way that Robert Curson describes the effects of nitrogen narcosis, and I honestly don't think I could describe it any better. So these next few paragraphs are direct quotes from his book, Shadow Divers. Quote, At a depth of around 3 atmospheres, or 66 feet, 20 meters, that accumulated nitrogen begins to have a narcotizing effect on most divers. That is nitrogen narcosis. Some compare the effects of narcosis to alcohol intoxication, others to the twilight of a waking anesthetic, and still others to the fog of laughing gas. Symptoms are relatively mild at shallower depths. Judgment skews, motor skills dull, manual dexterity suffers, peripheral vision narrows, emotions heighten. As a diver descends further, the effects intensify. At 130 feet, or 39.6 meters, or about 5 atmospheres, most divers will be impaired. As a diver descends even deeper, say to 170 or 180 feet, or 51.8 to 54.8 meters, he might start to hallucinate until the lobsters begin beckoning him by name or offering him unsound advice. Some divers realize that they are quote-unquote narked by the sounds that they hear. Below 200 feet, or 61 meters, narcosis can supercharge the normal processing of fear, joy, sorrow, excitement, and disappointment. Tiny problems, such as a missing knife or a bit of silt, can be perceived as unfolding catastrophes and snowball into panic. Serious problems, like a depleting air tank or a loss of an anchor line, can appear as niggling annoyances. 
I think Robert Curson does an amazing job at describing the effects of narcosis. But something else deep divers face underwater is that, should something go wrong, they cannot simply swim to the surface. If you remember from earlier mentions on the podcast, deep divers need to perform decompression stops on their return to the surface. This provides ample time for a diver's body to readjust to the decreasing pressures, and if a diver skips these deco stops, they can encounter life-threatening decompression sickness, or aka the bends. Severe bends can permanently handicap, paralyze, or even kill a person. Divers who have witnessed the horrible agony of a bad bends hit swear that they would rather suffocate and drown on the bottom, or even, quote, slit their own throats, end quote, than resurface after a long, deep dive without decompression. To combat some of the dangers of deep wreck diving, an excellent diver would spend days, maybe even weeks, planning his dive. They might contemplate the wreck, study the deck plans, decide on which area of the boat to work on, and set reasonable goals. Navigation is a key to safety and success on each wreck dive. But as a first-time discoverer of this mysterious underwater mass, John Chatterton did not have the luxury of studying any plans. John geared up and jumped into the water. Just below the surface, he could already tell that the water here wasn't normal. The current was swirling and ripping in different directions. The anchor line that he was holding onto for guidance as he descended down was bent into an S-shape. John found himself white-knuckling the line, fighting the whole way down to keep from being blown from the rope. What would normally be a two-minute descent time took John six minutes before he landed on a mass of metal. In the ripping current, visibility was poor, only about five feet or one and a half meters. He could only see specks of rust on the metal, and above him, a rounded railing in a soft corner of some kind. An oddly streamlined shape, he thought to himself, for what was probably just a sunken barge. But he checked his depth, 218 feet, or 66.4 meters, and the sand below him looked to be about 230 feet, or 70 meters. He decided the wreck was worth looking into, and tied off the anchor line, attached a strobe light, and began to swim the length of the metal mass. As he continued down, he spotted a hatch and that made him stop. Barges don't have hatches, and this hatch was open. So John decided to push his head inside, lighting up the area with his headlamp. There was a room, and he was sure of it because the walls were still intact. As John continued to look at this room, he noticed a shape unlike any other in the entire world. A torpedo. A complete, intact torpedo. John talked to himself underwater. I'm narked. I'm at 220 feet. I'm exhausted from fighting the current. I could be seeing things. You're on top of a submarine, he told himself. There are no submarines anywhere near this part of the ocean. I have books. I have studied books. There are no submarines here. This is impossible. But there is no other shape in the world like a torpedo's. And John recalled the streamlined hole of the mass. This is more than a huge dive. This is the holy grail, he thought to himself. Now that he believed he was peeking inside a submarine, he began inspecting it even closer. 
With the marine growth and the deterioration of the metal, there was no mistaking its vintage. John speculated this submarine was from World War II, but he knew that there was no sunken American submarines in the area. Then he thought, I'm holding on to a World War II German U-boat. Could a crew be on board? Could this be a U-boat with crew on board and no one in the world knew about it but him? What was it doing in New Jersey waters? Back on board the Seeker, John informed everyone that what they had just found was a submarine. Up until this point, many of the divers had reservations about diving an unknown wreck at 230 feet, but this new information instantly neutralized any concerns. While John entered the boat and began removing his gear, the other divers geared up and splashed in. Some of the divers would soon discover a section of the top of the steel hole that looked like it had been blown inwards. The room inside could contain history. A quick swim in and out could reveal the identity of this submarine, but no one dared to enter it. While the room might contain answers, it also contained a hundred different ways to kill a diver. Between 1939 and 1945, Germany had a fleet of 1,167 U-boats. U-boats had a new ability to stalk enemies invisibly, and with them came a fear that death lurked silently and everywhere at all times. In just one month in 1940, U-boats sank 66 ships while only losing one of their own. But of the 1,167 fleet, 757 were either sunk, captured, bombed in ports, or fell from accident or collision. Of the 859 U-boats left for frontline patrol, 648 were sunk or captured while operating at sea, a lose rate of more than 75%. Near the end of World War II, a crewman's survival rate was less than 45%. Since most of the attacks occurred in open waters, as many as 65 U-boats disappeared without explanation. On Labor Day 1991, the last diver resurfaced and boarded the Seeker and the anchor line was pulled. As they traveled back to the New Jersey coastline, everyone agreed that no one would say a word about what they had found to anyone, not even their wives. The discovery was only half the job and the other half was identifying the sub, and this was far too big of a fine to let someone else take credit for it. They couldn't tell anyone about this, especially because Bill Nagel had a rival in a competing dive boat, the Belinda. After these promises were made to remain silent, they began discussing which U-boat it might be. Could it be the U-550, a U-boat that was supposedly sunk in the far North Atlantic but was never recovered? It couldn't be the American S-5. Although the sub had not yet been found, it was speculated to lay near Maryland. One of the divers, John Yerga, had picked up a book for light reading during their dive trip. That book just happened to be titled U-Boats, The Evolution and Technical History of German Submarines. He grabbed it and quickly thumbed through it, trying to recall what he remembered seeing during his dive. He shut the book and announced what they had seen had to be German. It was definitely a U-boat. But the secret of this U-boat discovery only lasted a full two hours after returning to the shore. 
one of the divers called up Richie Kohler. Not only was he one of the Eastern Seaboard's most daring and accomplished deep wreck divers, but he was also an amateur historian and had a deep interest in all things German. If there hadn't been a history of bad blood between Richie and John Chatterton, Richie would have been invited onto the trip that discovered the U-boat. While the divers had to wait for the Seeker's schedule to open up, they began researching. Which U-boat could this be? They began searching local libraries for any submarines that were recorded as sunk near where their mystery wreck was located. In total, only two stood out to them. The U-550 was sunk in April 1944 by Allied forces. While the attack occurred in New Jersey waters, it was still 100 miles, or 161 kilometers, away from their 230-foot deep mystery. The other one that caught their attention was the U-521. Sunk in June 1943, this attack had occurred 120 miles, or 193 kilometers, south in Virginia waters. But the longer that they looked at these two U-boats, the more and more that they thought their unknown sub couldn't be one of them. John decided to take a trip to Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry, where the U-505 was held and open for tours. The U-505 had been captured by allies off of the coast of Africa in 1944. John walked the entire length of the U-505, studying the compartments, where certain items were usually kept, where certain rooms or crew quarters were. He knew nothing about German U-boats, but the more he learned while inside one on land, the easier he could navigate the sunken U-boat and find items that held the secret to which U-boat they had found. The second trip to the mystery U-boat site occurred on September 21, 1991. John splashed first and went to secure the anchor line. Visibility was better this day, about 20 feet or 6 meters. And as he approached the submarine, he could see the conning tower laying in the sand near it and the gaping hole in the submarine side. It was clear that this submarine had not gone down peacefully. John swam the length of the wreck, trying to recall his trip to Chicago, and looking for any similarities on the submarine. As his bottom time reached its end, he began ascending while two other divers, Paul Sabinski and Steve Feldman, were just making their way to the submarine. They had both promised each other to make their way back up to the anchor line at about 14 minutes after reaching the wreck, no matter how promising any debris or artifacts might be. After his watch read 13 minutes, Paul tapped Steve's shoulder and pointed up, indicating that it was time to go. Steve nodded and gave him the okay sign, and Paul turned around to begin making his way to the anchor line. As Paul began his ascent, he looked down and saw Steve was still digging through the debris. He thought to himself that Steve needed to stop digging and start making his decompression stops, but then he noticed that there was no bubbles coming from Steve's regulator. Paul instantly knew that something wasn't right, and he headed back down to Steve. Paul grabbed Steve and turned him around. As he did, Steve's regulator fell from his mouth, and his eyes weren't blinking. Paul began to panic as a narcosis beat on his head. What should he do? He tried to place the regulator back into Steve's mouth, but it kept falling out of his limp mouth. Should he inflate Steve's vest and launch him to the surface? No, the bends would kill him. Should he leave Steve behind to ensure his own safety and controlled deco stops? Paul's narcosis only let him think one thought. Can't abandon a friend. Can't abandon a friend. Over and over. 
Since that only left one option, Paul began his ascent with Steve's limp body in his arms. Sometimes unconscious divers can snap out of it with ascent. Paul was pretty sure that he had heard that before. But as Paul ascended with Steve's body, Steve was negatively buoyant and Paul was sucking more and more air from his tank, fighting to hold onto Steve and fighting the current to hold onto the anchor line. Steve was getting heavy. Paul looked up and saw two divers coming his way. He needed to rest. Paul let go of the anchor line for just one moment, but that was all it took. With the powerful current, Paul and Steve's body began drifting away from the anchor line. Paul knew that he had to get back to that anchor line. Without it, the current could carry him out to sea and he would be forever lost. That anchor line is every diver's lifeline. Paul kicked as hard as he could, burning through air, trying to reach the line. His grip began to loosen on his friend's body until finally he accidentally let go. Steve's body began to plummet into the open ocean. Instinctively, one of the divers that was coming down the anchor line, Doug Roberts, bolted after Steve. At about 200 feet deep, Doug finally got a hold of Steve's harness, but the body was so heavy that they continued to fall to the seafloor. Doug rushed to find Steve's BC inflator, or dry suit inflator. If he could just get some air in it, he might be able to carry him to the surface. In the jungle of Steve's equipment, Doug could not find the inflator. He looked into Steve's eyes and only saw the eyes of a dead man staring back. Doug looked around. He didn't see the wreck or the anchor line. All that he saw around him was just sand. Doug thought, we're lost in the middle of nowhere. I'm lost. As Doug sat lost with Steve's body on the bottom, Paul had regained the anchor line at about 160 feet, or 48.7 meters. He rushed toward the other diver that he had seen descending, Kevin Brennan, and gave him the signal that he was out of air. Paul lunged forward for Kevin's regulator, but Kevin backed up. He had seen this look on a diver before, the severe panic. He couldn't let Paul kill them both. He reached around and pulled out his reserve tank and handed it to Paul. Paul hooked it up and sucked down air, and the two began to resurface together. At about 30 feet from the surface, Kevin handed Paul off to another diver and went back down. He knew that he had to go look for Doug and Steve. Back at the bottom of the ocean, Doug checked his gauges. He saw that he had burned through 60% of his air. He knew he needed to return to the surface, even if that meant going straight up and getting blown miles from the seeker before he could even break the surface. He tied a line to Steve's body and began to ascend. At about 100 feet, or 30.4 meters, Doug saw a miracle. The anchor line. Somehow, he had been blown back toward the seeker. He tied the rope that was attached to Steve's body to the anchor line and began his improvised decompression stops since he wasn't exactly sure how long he was down at the bottom. Paul, Doug, and Kevin all resurfaced around the same time. Kevin was up first and he told John from the water, There's a problem down there. There's a dead guy on the wreck. I think it's Steve Feldman. A few minutes later, Paul surfaced and climbed into the seeker screaming, He's dead. He's dead. I couldn't breathe. My regulator. He's dead. John Chatterton rushed over and removed Paul's diving hood. He was covered in vomit. 
Did you do your deco? he asked Paul. When he answered with a muffled, I don't know, John asked him again. Paul vomited again before crying, Steve's dead. This time, John yelled, Did you do your deco? Paul managed to nod in confirmation, and as he did, Doug resurfaced. Feldman's down there. You gotta go get him. John looked at Doug and noticed blood on his face. Let me look at your mask. You might have embolized. When Doug started coughing up blood, John shouted, Get a chopper! He feared that Doug may need an emergency lift to the hospital. But as John inspected him, he noticed that the blood had stopped and it was most likely just a busted blood vessel. No embolism. After everyone calmed down a bit, they determined that John Chatterton and Danny Crowell were returned to go get Steve Feldman's body. But because all the divers had already been down once today, they still needed to wait two more hours for their bodies to off-gas enough before they could dive that deep again. Two hours later, John and Danny entered the waters to recover Steve's body. When they reached the end of the line that Doug had tied, they found only Steve's masks and snorkel. No body. John instantly knew what happened. In the pounding tunnel vision and slowed motor skills of narcosis, Doug had tied the line to Steve's head instead of his harness. As the current kicked, it pulled Steve loose, leaving only his mask behind. They knew that he was negatively buoyant and would be somewhere along the bottom, but they were out of time and couldn't continue searching. After returning to the surface with this horrible news, John Hildman and Mark McMahone volunteered to do sand sweeps to look for Steve's body. It was a dangerous job, but they knew that they needed to get their friends' bodies. But on this trip, they too returned to the boat empty-handed. At this point, John and Bill agreed that they could no longer keep searching. It was getting too dangerous and too late in the day, and they would just end up losing more people. Bill Nagel called the Coast Guard at 4 p.m., five hours after they had first heard that Steve Feldman was dead. Kevin called Richie Kohler and told him what happened to Steve Feldman. The next day, Richie called Kevin back and told him he wanted in on the dive. It didn't matter how dangerous it was, he wanted to be part of the history that was unfolding before them. But the problem with getting Richie Kohler on board was the animosity that was between him and John Chatterton. John disliked Richie, not just personally, but for what he represented. Richie was part of an infamous diving group known as the Atlantic Wreck Divers. While they were a group of fearless wreck divers, John hated the fact that they were a group of vultures, always picking sites clean of every last piece of scrap, as long as it filled their goodie bags. To John, it didn't seem like any of them dove for exploration or knowledge. They only dove to collect artifacts, and lots of them. John thought if being part of the Atlantic Wreck Divers was Richie's only wrongdoing, he could forgive him. But a few years earlier, in 1989, the Atlantic Wreck Divers had planned to screw over the Seeker and her crew. When the Andrea Doria wrecked, divers flocked there to gather up as many items from the ship as they could. In 1989, the divers on the Seeker worked hard to open up a small hole into the third-class dining room filled with china. But when competing divers on the Belinda, Richie Kohler being one of them, found out about this hole that John had opened up, 
They made plans to head out there days before the season opened to strip the dining hall clean. The Seeker found out about these plans, headed out even earlier, and then as they left, John welded a grate over the hole, with a plaque next to it reading, Closed for inventory. Please use alternative entrance. Thank you. Crew and patrons of Seeker. But since then, Richie had had a nasty falling out with Belinda, and desperately wanted on the Seeker to help uncover the submarine's identity. Just eight days after Steve Feldman's death, Bill Nagel planned a return dive to the mysterious U-boat for September 29, 1991. This time, Richie Kohler would be on board. As usual, John splashed first and tied in the grapple. After the line was secured, he videotaped his dives, skipped over any potential artifacts, and returned to the Seeker with just knowledge. But on their first dives, it seemed that no one returned with anything of any value. Around noon, John dressed for his second dive of the day, and this time he was planning to penetrate the submarine. Inside what he believed to be the commander's quarters, he found a cabinet. And inside that cabinet, it contained two white bowls with green rims. On the back, it read 1942. And above the year were the markings of the eagle and the swastika, the symbol of Hitler's Third Reich. John had confirmed it. This was definitely a German U-boat. But which one? And why was it here in New Jersey? For nearly an hour, John and Richie were decompressing within feet of each other. At about 30 feet or 9 meters from the surface, Richie jumped up to join John underwater. He saw something bulging from John's artifact bag and instinctively reached for it. John pulled away, almost disgusted at the thought that Richie was trying to take these things from him. But John looked at him, and he didn't see any hostility in Richie's eyes only pure curiosity and a thirst for knowledge. John pulled the dishes out and showed them to Richie. Richie danced underwater, yelling through his regulator, You did it! I can't believe this! Back on the boat, Richie told John, quote, You know, this was the most exciting dive of my life. The whole thing was a once-in-a-lifetime, but the part that I liked the best was the time we spent in the water just looking at those dishes. For a while, you and I were the only two people in the world who knew that this was a U-boat. The only two in the world. End quote. John nodded. He knew exactly what Richie meant. And from that moment on, he thought, maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to get to know this guy better. During their time in the off-season, John and Richie dug deep into their research. No historical text that they could find had any mention of a submarine wreck in this area. John wrote letters to historical experts, German U-boat experts, and more. Ritchie joined a German-American club in which a veteran U-boat crewman told Ritchie to check the boots for identifications. He said that oftentimes crewmen would write their names on the inside. They hated it when other people would wear their boots. As weeks passed since the dishes were found, and dozens of hours of research were put in, one fact screamed above all else. No U-boat had ever been recorded sunk within a 100-mile radius, or 161-kilometer radius, of the wreck site. 
After reaching dead end upon dead end, John finally hit the conclusion, why not put out the news of the U-boat discovery to the world? Surely there would be someone out there who knew of its existence. The group of divers got together and came up with a press release. It read, quote, For immediate release, October 10, 1991. Divers discover mystery U-boat off of New Jersey coast. Captain Bill Nagel and the divers of the Brielle, New Jersey charter vessel Seeker have located a World War II German U-boat sunk only 65 miles from the New Jersey coast at approximate latitude 40, longitude 73.30. The wreck lies upright and essentially intact, though it shows damage from an apparent depth charge attack. The U-boat is in 230 feet of water, making it accessible to only a select few experienced deep wreck divers. The submarine was located on Labor Day during a seeker expedition to identified undiscovered wrecks. On a subsequent trip to the wreck, seeker crew member John Chatterton recovered two china dishes from deep within the wreck, each emblazoned with a Nazi swastika and dated 1942, proof of the sub's origin. The items recovered from the wreck prove it is a World War II German U-boat, but which one? No German submarines were ever reported sunk within 150 miles of this location, and German records contain no accounts of U-boats being lost in New Jersey waters. Divers from the Seeker will continue to cautiously probe the wreck to discover its identity and unravel the mystery of why it is where it is. A small piece of naval history may have to be rewritten. Contact Captain Bill Nagel. End quote. Attached with the press release was a black-and-white photo of the dishes, but days passed and no one heard anything. One day, a skeptical reporter from the Newark Star-Ledger called Bill Nagel. After meticulously answering all of his questions, a headline on the bottom of the next day's newspaper read, quote, U-boat wreck found off Point Pleasant, end quote. After this article, calls came flooding in. Some were crazy stories about people seeing U-boat crewmen walking onto American soil from the ocean. Some were horrible German men calling, asking if Feldman was a Jew. Or yelling at the divers to not disturb the dead crew. And some were disgusting collectors wanting to purchase a Nazi skull. Obviously, John, Ritchie, and Bill all declined the offer to sell skulls. They were dignified men who did not dare disturb any underwater graves. Although these crewmen had fought for the enemy, they understood that a soldier deserved respect in his death. But not all of these calls and letters that the group received were families, fanatics, or conspiracy theorists. One day, John received a letter from Dieter Leonhard, a captain in the German Navy and a German embassy in Washington, D.C. John thought that finally, Leonhard might have the connections that he needed in order to uncover the identity of this submarine. But unfortunately, that's all the time I have for this week. Find out more on next week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions about this week's episode, you can head over to my Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, P-O-D, or my Discord server. If you want to support the podcast, there's always Patreon or sharing the podcast with a friend. The Patreon is just $3 a month or the price of one coffee, and you get access to a lot of perks such as voting on what to hear next, exclusive updates, a shout out at the end of the next episode, and 10% off podcast merchandise. 
Thank you so much again for listening, and I'll see you all next week.